This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. All Haymarket titles are currently 40% off as part of Haymarket's holiday sale. Browse more than a 1,000 Haymarket books from authors including Angela Davis, Arundhati Roy, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, Eve Ewing, Aja Monet, Mariam Kaba, Naomi Klein, Rebecca Solnit, Olufemi Taiwo, Muhammad El-Kurd, Noam Chomsky, Howard Zinn, Mike Davis, Mark Lamont Hill, Astra Taylor, and many more. All 40% off until the end of the year. Head over to haymarketbooks.org to browse Haymarket's full catalog and help ensure the future of radical publishing by making a purchase today. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today's episode is my interview with the renowned Palestinian poet, journalist, and organizer, Mohammed El-Kurd. It was recorded live at Amherst College on November 14th. Two weeks later, the Palestinian death toll is thousands of people higher, and Israel has temporarily agreed to a ceasefire with Hamas, pausing its genocidal assault on Gaza. It's a ceasefire that will require continued global pressure to extend. This movement, here in the U.S. and everywhere around the world, is necessary and historic. At the end of my interview with Mohammed, I ask him a number of questions submitted from an audience mostly made up of Amherst undergrads. Some of those questions might at first sound like stupid questions to you or to me, but Mohammed does a great and truly exemplary job answering them. Before we get this conversation going, please step up to support The Dig with a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. We believe that political education is essential to building a strong left here in the U.S. and throughout the world. And do you know that The Dig is an essential political education project because we provide the most extensive and in-depth analysis with the smartest left-wing intellectuals, ruthless criticism of all that exists, every sort of topic or period of history or place. And we can only make this political education free to everyone, as we do, regardless of your capacity to contribute, because those of you who can afford to contribute do so at patreon.com slash the dig. We also have books, mugs, tote bags to send you, depending on how much you give and where you live. But everyone who contributes any amount at all gets our excellent newsletter delivered by email. Contribute now if you can and support this essential political education work. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. On that note, everyone can read our excellent newsletter for free alongside our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Thanks. And here's Mohammed El-Kurd, a poet, writer, journalist, and organizer from Jerusalem in occupied Palestine. He's best known for his role as a co-founder of the Save Sheikh Jarrah movement and currently serves as Palestine correspondent for the nation. Can you hear me all right? Um, thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thanks, Mohammed, for being here. Let's start just with the basics of what's happening right now, what's happening right now on the ground in Gaza 
amongst Palestinians, how they're experiencing this assault and what is Israel's goal as you can see it as their F-16s pound the Gaza Strip and their tanks roll into Gaza City? This is this is a very important question because if we're if we're watching the news, if we're consuming um, television channels, we would be hearing about an Israel-Hamas war, quote unquote, Israel-Hamas war. Uh, but that's not necessarily an important, fr- uh, not necessarily an accurate framing of what's happening on the ground. Not because um, there is asymmetry in the powers at play here, but because it ignores a lot of the history of what is happening on the ground, what has what has happened since before October 7th. And I say this not as just contextual footnotes that can or can't be disregarded, but as the very genesis of everything that is happening right now and everything that has happened on October 7th. So I just want to take one or two minutes to talk about the framing. As I'm sure a lot of you know, the Gaza Strip uh, is now besieged, but it has been besieged also for 16 years. This is an Egyptian-Israeli-imposed siege blockade that is largely controlled by Israel. It's a siege of land, air, and water. People over there, we often hear this idea, we often hear this narrative that Israel pulled out of the Gaza Strip in 2005, that there is not any settlements left since 2005. But this fact ignores the fact that Israel continues to control every aspect of life in the Gaza Strip, including pharmaceuticals, including food, including water, including travel, including freedom to movement, and so on and so forth. This cannot be understated. And every few years, people in the Gaza Strip have their, their calendars marked by bombardments. And outside of the Gaza Strip, in the occupied West Bank, for example, you have people who live under occupation. And again, we can talk a little bit about, we can throw words like occupation around, but we don't necessarily understand the significance of those meaning, of those words. How do they manifest materially? To be living under occupation not only does it mean that you carry a different colored uh, ID, that you're... Uh, freedom uh, of movement is restricted, that your land is constantly at risk of theft, but it also means that you live a life that is devalued. A few years, a few months ago, an Israeli uh, minister called Etomar uh, Ben-Gvir said something about how he, he was talking to an Arab TV reporter and he said, you know, I'm sorry, Muhammad. He was talking to the, to the Arab TV reporter and he said, but my family's life is more important than your freedom. And his remarks garnered a lot of outrage around the world, even from American politicians who said, how dare he say this? But when I heard these remarks that are absolutely racist, I did not raise an eyebrow because these remarks happen to be very factual. According to Israeli legislation and living under Israeli rule, the lives of my family are absolutely worth less than Israeli families, just by how things are governed. This is the absolutely most important departure point we must use to understand the situation on the ground. And as I said, it's not just marginal context. It is the very 
answer to everything. Now, in the past 30-something days, we have seen the Israelis engage in a genocidal campaign of bombardment of the Gaza Strip. And I don't say just genocidal out of my own speculation or uh, as hyperbole, but based on uh, the analysis of many uh, experts in genocidal studies and based on the remarks made by Israeli politicians themselves that have expressed genocidal intent over and over again. And also by looking at the death toll. Between 1947 and 1948, when the Israeli state was established, 15,000 Palestinians were killed by Zionist militias that later created the, the Israeli military. And about 7, 700,000, 750,000 Palestinians were forcibly displaced from their homes where now Israeli settlements are erect. In the past 30 something days only, over 11,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli bombardments, and about a million point seven Palestinians have been forced to flee their homes, have been forced to become displaced and homeless. This is the magnitude. And I'll share with you just one anecdote of something that I saw, and I'm sure some of you saw. Um, during the Israeli bombardment of the Jabalia refugee camp, a father is seen as recorded carrying two plastic bags and he declares to the onlookers, he declares to the press, this is my son, I have gathered his remains in two separate plastic bags. So when we are talking about 11,000 plus Palestinians, we are not just talking about a number, we are talking about a population of people that has endured the most agonizing types of death, whose families will continue to wrestle the most agonizing grief for the rest of their lives. That is what's happening on the ground in the Gaza Strip. You've been speaking and organizing for Palestine for a long time. Why has October 7th and the month that's followed been such a turning point? Why has it been so hard to make the, the basic value of Palestinian lives legible to people? This began in not on October 7th, but in 1948 or even before in 1917. Yet for many Americans, it seems so sudden. How has this entire set of discourses and framings emerged that allows the overwhelming majority of the American political class, for example, to depict Rashida Tlaib as an anti-Semite spouting hate speech for saying, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, a basic which prima facie is a call for justice and freedom, or for her denouncing the Israeli genocide currently taking place in Gaza, for that to be framed as somehow hateful? Um, I think we learn time and time again that history begins at their loss. The reason why October 7th has received so much attention is the same reason why plane hijackings, for example, have received so much attention or suicide bombings have received so much attention. It's because their people, and I'm not talking about just Israelis, I'm talking about Europeans and Israelis and superpowers, they have had to pay a certain price. Throughout the past seven decades, eight decades, nine decades, Palestinians have been engaging in all kinds of resistance. We've been producing literature, poetry, we have been protesting all over the world. We have been trying the diplomatic efforts. We have been negotiating. We have been 
doing everything under the sun to bring attention to our plight and to bring justice to our plight. But we are told time and time again that if we decide to create a nonviolent movement of boycott, divestments, and, sac and sanctions that seeks to uh, impose economic uh, pressure on the Israeli government to end its crime of apartheid, we're not going to receive media attention. Media is going to turn a blind eye to this, and that movement is going to be penalized. BDS itself is portrayed as anti-Semitic or even terroristic, even though it is a Absolutely. classic tactic of nonviolent resistance. Absolutely. And even another stark example is the 2018 Great March of Return, where hundreds and thousands of Palestinians were targeted and shot at by Israeli snipers who created an, a population of amputees that walked around the Gaza Strip limbless. And they did so in broad daylight. And they offered confession after confession. And none of this, none of this nonviolent protesting at the in the Gaza Strip against the siege, against the blockade, against the none of that received media attention. So we are told as a people time and time again that our death is quotidian. Our death is business as usual. It can be at best mentioned in the end of year reports. It is mentioned in sums. We are told that the year 2020 was the most fatal year for Palestinians in the occupied West Bank since the United Nations started keeping count. And then we are told 2023 was the most fatal year for Palestinians in the occupied West Bank since the UN started keeping count, where they were killed by Israeli settlers and Israeli soldiers. And yet none of that warrants any media attention. And we are told the only time we can bring attention to our plight is when they have to pay a certain price. That says a lot about the devaluing of Palestinian life. And obviously we'll talk about this a little bit more uh, probably towards the end, but when we're talking about a solution and a, and a way forward, we're not just demanding the end of the occupation and the breaking of the siege and full human rights for Palestinians, but there needs to be a global reckoning with how the world has demonized and continues to dehumanize the Palestinian people on television screens, in newspapers, on university campuses. Those of us who have been victims of Zionism, when we speak out against our experiences, we are at worst hateful and anti-Semitic, and, and at best we are angry and passionate and driven by emotion, but in truth we are just reliable narrators. Yet people speak over us all the time, and our intentions get misconstrued, and we get pushed into a corner, accused of all kinds of baseless accusations, and we have to defend ourselves while the bombs fall on our people. That is something that needs to be dealt with, absolutely. Before October 7th, it seems as though Israel and the United States' goal was to pacify and contain and kind of permanently compartmentalize the Palestinian issue. And we saw that with, of course, the process of normalization, diplomatic normalization between Israel and Arab countries, particularly Saudi Arabia. What do you see to be Israel's goal now? Their official stated goal is that they want to wipe off Hamas off of the face of the earth. And this is what your tax dollars are funding. And this is why they just received another $14 billion from the U.S. government, because they say their face, their goal is to eradicate Hamas. Now we know, and history has told us, that they are unable to wipe out Hamas. 
And also from uh, an Israeli political perspective, some have held the view that it's not even in their political favor to wipe out Hamas because Hamas continues to be this delegitimized boogeyman in the Western imagination that they can hang all of their excuses on. And we also know that even if they can, not only do, can they not take out Hamas militarily, because Israelis are, uh, you know, the Israeli military has been a military that engages in the murder and slaughter of people from the sky. They seldom engage in ground battles. They just can, they continue to drop 2,000 pound bombs on residential buildings, flattening them and killing thousands and thousands of civilians in the process. And I mean, by Israeli estimates, they have killed less than a hundred Hamas fighters. That's by their own estimates. And they have killed over 11,000 Palestinian civilians. And that is somehow okay in the global landscape. But also not only can they not take out Hamas militarily, they also, what they're doing, what they're doing is going to create more animosity and more desire for um, armed resistance because we know that violence begets violence. And if the Palestinian people are told that if you're nonviolent resistance is going to be penalized and criminalized, and if you try to go to the ACC, we're going to impose sanctions on the ACC, and if you're going to speak up, we're going to uh, tarnish you as an anti-Semite, what else will people turn to? but the rifle. That is not a minor detail. And that is, I, I know this is uncomfortable for many people listening here, but it is something that needs to be reckoned with. Otherwise, we are naive to think that anything that's going to come out of this Israeli campaign is anything but more death and destruction. Now, another thing that the Israelis have been hoping to achieve in this campaign is to delegitimize the Palestinian resistance as a whole. Hamas, regardless of what I think of it, regardless of what you all think of it, Hamas is a political Islamist movement that has both a political wing and a military wing. It has been classified by many Western governments as a terrorist organization, but we also know that the Western governments have classified many people and organizations as terrorist organizations. Hamas may not represent my my own beliefs or my own uh, political views, but to depoliticize it by constantly synonymizing it and conflating it with Taliban and ISIS and Al-Qaeda as some kind of rabid, agendaless group who is just bloodthirsty and eager to kill as many people as possible is disingenuous. Regardless of what you think of the means that Hamas has been using, of the methods that we can have all kinds of discussions about morality, about viability, about tactics, about the law, but regardless of all of this, Hamas has political aspirations. It wants to end the siege, it wants to free Palestinian political prisoners, it wants to end the system of apartheid. And those are the questions that we as the world need to be dealing with. We cannot ignore this. And by, by, by depoliticizing Hamas or delegitimizing it, we are, we are turning a blind eye to the, very, to the very circumstances that created Hamas. And as clear, factual history, Israel has time and time again chosen to keep Hamas in power. In, in Gaza, and it seems as though it's pretty clear that this goal of, of depoliticizing the Palestinian cause in its history is to make it appear as though there is no political solution and thus only a military solution, even though 
it is obvious that the military solution, quote-unquote solution, that Israel is currently pursuing in the Gaza Strip is just a doubling down and intensification of the very same sort of politics that led to October 7th in the first place. It's a solution of even more occupation and more conquering and more land theft. It's quite bizarre that uh, a slogan like from the river to the sea uh, can, gar- can garner so much headline and discussion. Again, we are often caught in discursive battles where what we say is interrogated and put in a corner and we have to apologize for our language and, and, and sanitize our language while their very actions, their very systemic institutionalized and legalized actions can run without scrutiny. The very fact that Netanyahu and the Israeli government and Israeli soldiers and people and Israeli media and public figures are already talking about a reality in which they control not only the the lives of uh, people in the Gaza Strip, but they control the land in the Gaza Strip. They build settlements, on the, they conquer it. They talk, they're talking about building a Disneyland in the Gaza Strip in a water park and blah, blah, blah. That flies under the radar. The fact that Israeli politicians can... Um, talk on podiums with maps of greater Israel, the fact that Netanyahu can go to the United Nations and show a a map that shows a greater Israel that includes parts of Syria, the West Bank, Gaza Strip, all of this flies under the radar. But the, the intent is clear. It's more and more land theft. And this is the very defining factor. I think we must also understand what Zionism means. A lot of people will tell you that Zionism means that the Jewish people deserve a Jewish homeland. And it, um, and it emerged as a response to the to the anti-Semitism problem in Europe. And I have no problem with this notion. I have no problem if, if I mean, I'm, I'm very much against ethnostates in general, but if, if, uh, if the Jewish people unanimously want to build a homeland of their own, I have no problem with it. I just have a problem with it being in my backyard. And I say in my backyard, not as an exaggeration, but as a fact that there is literally a settler from Long Island who is of European descent, who, who emigrated to Israel, got Israeli citizenship, and then squatted in my house, claiming it's his own by divine decree and under the protection of the Israeli army and the judi- judiciary. So this is what Zionism means in practice. It means it is an exclusive, exclusionary ideology, and it's an expansionist ideology that is seeking to create as much, to take as much land and have as little possible Palestinians remain on that land. And this is explicit. It looks us in the face. And if you do not believe me because I'm Palestinian and my testimony is worth less, you can look up the very articulations of the pioneers of Zionism who have articulated articulated their movement as a colonialist movement, as a settler movement, and you can look up what the Zionist leaders today are saying about their very movement, and and you can look where their bulldozers are building their settlements, and you can get your answer there. As we discussed earlier, the nearly the entirety of the American political class has, in a truly dystopian and Orwellian manner, been lined up lockstep behind Israel, even as the Palestinian body count clears 10,000 people, many, many, many of them children, many, many of them young, young children. It's been just like incredibly disturbing to watch. But on the other hand, we're witnessing a mass movement in solidarity with Palestine in the United States, unlike anything that's existed in this country. It's a true, I think, generational shift underway. And think, I think it's the most internationalist moment that we've seen on the American left in my conscious lifetime. What do you make of this 
movement exploding the way that it has right now? And then where do you see it heading potentially? Where, what possible directions do you see the movement and the politics that it's unleashed going from here? What place would have and, and how will it transform not only American politics as a whole, but, but this project that we have as the American left? I mean, it's, it's very, it's, it's not surprising to see this many American politicians be, you know, bipartisan, be very, very staunch supporters of the Zionist regime is not surprising considering, you know, lots of them are inept and they get their orders um, from lots of their donors. And many of them also believe in this. Many of them are inherently racist. Many of them do see Palestinian lives as less than, and even by their own admission, as lives that need to be eradicated, lives that need to be leveled. It wasn't shocking to me. It was heartwarming, but it wasn't shocking to me to see the hundreds of thousands of people protesting across the world in in Sana'a, in Baghdad, in Amman, but also in in London, in uh, Los Angeles, in Washington, D.C., in New York City. Uh, It's not surprising because I think the narrative has not only shifted, but it has completely changed since 2021 when we had the the Sheikh Jarrah moment. It has completely changed. I think people, young people at large, are are standing on the right side of history um, because the because the asymmetry is so stark. It's very hard. It is very hard for you to just merely look at what's happening and recog- and not recognize the oppressor and the oppressed, not recognize who's right and who's wrong. Um, who's the colonizer and who's the colonizer. It's, it's, it's quite an, an easy dilemma. Now, to translate this into politics, these politicians, these senators, these congresspeople have to pay really steep political prices. I, I don't think there's enough Palestinian blood that will make Chuck Schumer reconsider his position. I don't think there is a massacre big enough for Joe Biden to say, enough. It has to come at their own expense, and we do so by targeting their, um, you know, political futures, and targeting all of that that they are invested in. Um, and if we're not talking just about politicians, when we're talking about corporations, by targeting um, targeting them economically, which is why something like BDS is so important in employing economic sanctions. But I think the the narrative shift, the cultural sentiment that is being born in this moment is that I think the American people or a sizable chunk of the American people are saying that the Palestinian issue, quote unquote, the Palestinian issue is not something that they are willing to overlook. It is actually a compass that they look to when choosing their representatives and their representatives need to heed these calls, but it can only be done through political political prices. It seems to me that an important thing about this movement is not only its scale and not only the fact that we're seeing this huge generational shift towards solidarity with Palestine, I think specifically because so many young people had the experience of the George Floyd uprisings in 2020 and now do not buy the propaganda, they can see for themselves, as you say, the obviousness of who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed and who is the colonizer and who is the colonized. I think that's all very key. And I think maybe another thing that's very distinct now than from before is that Zionism itself 
is having a legitimacy crisis. It's not just about the occupation. It's about the Zionist project. What do you think the significance of that is? I think it's I think it's about time. I think it's about time that we start looking beyond just the one of the ways through which Zionism manifests, which is the military occupation, but looking at Zionism as a whole as an ideology that must be rejected outright. Again, not the notion that Jewish people need to have a home, not not a hill like here to die on. It's the notion that anybody should have a home at the expense of another people. It's it's about it's about time, and I think we cannot just we cannot just let this moment pass us by without taking a staunch public stance against Zionism because it is the root of all of all of this, and its material manifestations continue to prove so. What do you make of the role that Palestine solidarity appears to be playing in reviving internationalism on the American left? For a long time, so many of us on the American left, not only looking at Palestine, but just looking at the entire US-dominated capitalist world system and the nefarious deeds it has performed all over the world have really yearned for a more internationalist American left, though there are plenty of obvious reasons why we haven't had one as well. But now it's Palestine that seems to ha- be reviving this internationalism. Why is that? Why why does the struggle against Zionism and for Palestinian liberation carry this sort of, seem to carry, this sort of special universal significance? Why do you think Palestinian activism has ignited this more global and international perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a very excellent and very intricate question. Like, It, it could take me hours to answer it because I, I don't want to, first of all, I don't want to romanticize Palestinian activists, right? Palestinian communities um, in Palestine and in the diaspora still have, particularly in the diaspora, I would argue, we have a long way to reckon with a lot of things that are a bit anti-internationalist within our own communities, uh, to reckon with, uh, you know, our capitalist capitalist approach um, within our own communities, to reckon with the anti-blackness that exists within our own communities. Those are things that must not be disregarded when we romanticize. But I think uh, the reason why Palestine is such a hub for internationalism, Palestine, the geography, the resistance which exists in Palestine, and the crimes which happen on Palestinian soil and happen against Palestinian bodies in Palestine and in the diaspora, um, because they are a concentrated, they are a concentrated illustration of the ways Western superpowers come together to to exert violence against indigenous people, against brown people. And what what I mean by this is that a simple example is, you know, we have a movement called the Boycott, Divestment, and, and, and Sanctions Movement, which is a nonviolent movement that has been largely delegitimized in the United States. That have been uh, that has been targeted with efforts of criminalization. This very playbook that has targeted BDS has then been taken and replicated to target and criminalize um, efforts made by climate activists in the United States. Uh, has been taken and replicated and criminalized, uh, uh, sorry, replicated and uh, used to criminalize efforts made by black activists in the United States. So there is a repression policy that is 
tested and used against Palestinians that is then exported globally. Another thing is that a lot of the, the Israeli police repression tactics that are used against us are used then against black and brown people in the United States because American police sends its troops to be uh, trained by Israeli troops in mass surveillance tactics and militarization tactics and racial profiling tactics. Actually, the, 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 the officer who killed George Floyd was trained by Israeli officers. There is programs all over Minneapolis, New York City, Atlanta, all over. Another thing is the very weapons, the drones that are, that are used against us in the Gaza Strip are then exported and used against people in Kashmir. The cybersecurity efforts that are used against us are then uh, exported to authoritarian regimes and used against their own citizens. And I can go on and on. I could think about how the Israeli government and the Israeli military played a role in uplifting and supporting the uh, apartheid regime in South Africa, the role it played in the Rwandan genocide. And I don't say all of these examples to say that Israel is, you know, the root of all evil and that they control the world. That's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to say that the superpowers of the world have mutual interests, that the occupation is an internationalized enterprise where the United Arab Emirates and India and Israel and the United States all can benefit and profit from the occupation of the Palestinian people and then use the very violence used against us, against their own people at home. That is what I'm trying to say. And this is how Palestine can become a litmus test for internationalism because we understand through the liberation of Palestinians and through the liberation of Palestine, we can then liberate or aid in the liberation of oppressed people everywhere because our our oppressors are one and the same and they work together they are eager to maintain a status quo in which they rule and in which we are subjugated. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. This November, the magazine is hosting Bookmatch, its annual virtual fundraiser. In exchange for a donation of any size, N Plus One will make you a personalized list of 10 books based on your answers to a personality quiz. The books come recommended and blurbed by a host of great writers and thinkers, including George Shabala, Deborah Eisenberg, Siddhartha Deb, Kelly Reichardt, and me. They wrote that in the ad that I'm a great writer and thinker. I did not write that about myself. Anyhow, the selection ranges from Soviet stoner fiction to a new history of the Black Power movement, from film criticism to an experimental ethnography about oil rigs. Try it before November 30th and help support the work N Plus One is doing, the really essential work that N Plus One is doing. You can find the quiz at nplusonemag.com. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G.com. N Plus One is, quite sincerely, one of my favorite publications. Support them today. All right. There are so many questions here, and I'm just going to try to read them in bunches in terms of the ones that are thematically related. So th- this one is sort of a what 
what does what does a free Palestine look like? What path do you see to find a peaceful solution? What would a decolonized Palestine look like? Is there opposition in Israel that could be allied with Palestine? If not, why do you think this is the case? Can you articulate for us a political vision for life in Israel-Palestine? Do you envision the goal of your activism to lead to a two-state solution, one nation, federated state, or something else altogether? If Palestine is to be established from the river to the sea, what happens to the Jews living there? Would they be allowed equal rights and Palestinian citizenship? So to start to start to start off, I think like a lot of this, a lot of this is a bit of a distraction. Like a lot of this is a bit of a distraction. This talk about, you know, this talk about two state, one state. Uh, what happens to the settlers? You know, there's this idea that we're going to throw them all into the sea, etc. All of these hypotheticals. I can engage them from today until tomorrow, but I think what's important is to look at the facts on the ground. There is not a geography in which a two-state solution is possible. There are Palestinians between the river and the sea, and they are subjected to various forms of colonial violence, and there are Israeli settlements all over the West Bank. Actually, George W. Bush, hilariously, many years ago, described the West Bank to look like Swiss cheese, because it's just little islands encircled by colonies and military outposts. That is that is the fact of the ground on the ground. And again, you know, I always hesitate. Sometimes I even ridicule the question about what happens to the settlers um, in a liberated Palestine, because so often the people asking these questions, I don't think they wake up and go wash their face and look in the mirror and think. I wonder what's happening to the six million Palestinian refugees now living, forced to live in refugee camps, lingering in refugee camps, can only go to Palestine through the photographs that their parents and grandparents have. There is, there is kind of an elevation uh, of the lives and the feelings and the sentiments and the desires and the sovereignty and the location of the settler over the, the, the lives of the native. However, I can say this. I have no genocidal intent, intention. I have no genocidal intention. I don't have a desire to cause genocide against any people. And for people to hear a phrase like, uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, and consider it a call to genocide, that is much more a reflection of their own tendencies and impulses than it is a reflection of mine. Now, a decolonized Palestine can mean various things. And we can have discussions also about what is an ethnostate and a nation state and, and, and borders and, and all of these things. But that's, that's an abolition also. And that's, but that's a discussion for another time. I have a few things that I will be content with. I think Palestinian prisoners, Palestinian political prisoners need to be released, many of which are held indefinitely in Israeli jails without charge or trial. Um, in many cases, the prosecution will tell the judge that we have damning evidence. We just can't show it to you. And they'll be held indefinitely. I want them all released. I want the walls to come down. I want the six million Palestinian refugees to come home. And I want land back. And I want land back everywhere, not just in Palestine. And I want redistribution of resources. And I want, obviously, freedom and dignity for all. I can't believe that's even a, a question. So that's to me that's how uh, that's how a liberated Palestine can look like, and it's very achievable. 
it's it's very it's it's very achievable it's very achievable i refuse i refuse i refuse to live in a reality in which uh the subjugation and uh, the statelessness uh of of a certain people of millions and millions of people can just be business as usual i refuse that giving people uh their full rights can be considered um inconvenient or an inconvenience i refuse to live in a reality like that i think granting all those rights is an absolute necessity and it's absolutely possible and doable when you speak of legitimizing hamas how do you take into account their use of civilians as human shields and disregard for human life could you speak more about hamas's goal slash charter do their objections come at the expense of palestinian people do you think that hamas is anti-semitic Um I want to preface by saying that there are laws in this country that limit the scope of my answer and there are laws uh, within the Israeli government that could land me in jail like uh talking about Hamas or doing anything that could be interpreted as quote unquote support for Hamas could land land me in jail and in fact the Israeli government has just added an, an amendment to its 2012 counter terrorism law in which it ruled that if you do as much as consume what they call terrorist media which is so broad and so vague you can go to jail for a year right so i want to just to take into consideration the fact that there's only one right answer in this country for this question and that i do not have the freedom of speech to say everything um that i want to say however i will say this very basic fact and i think you know i think it's quite crazy that we don't that most people don't know Hamas's charter i think it's crazy that we don't regardless of whether or not you agree with them or disagree with them you know hamas has been uh, clarif- uh classified as a terrorist organization by both the united states government and the israeli government but the israeli government and the united states government have engaged with hamas politically and legitimized it politically for decades and continue to su- to do so and have negotiated with it but this classification is to limit their popular reach limit their their reach in the media but i think it's important even if you want to be even if you are completely in opposition uh of hamas both as like uh, either as a pacifist who doesn't believe in armed struggle which i can respect or as a person who has political disagreements with hamas or as you know a person who's very pro israel very staunch anti palestinian i think it's just important for you to engage and understand what you are against that is a very long preface but i think it's necessary now i'll answer this way hamas is a political movement it is by its own admission i don't know what lingers in people's hearts but it says that it's not anti-semitic it says in its charter which was updated in 2017 that its problem is with zionism and not with the jewish people now whether there are certain hamas members who are anti-semitic that is not uh for me uh to decide but the organization it says itself it's not and you know whenever there is a claim made by the israeli government it is a headline plastered all over the new york times and the washington post i assume both if we're if we're calling this an israel hamas war then po- both parties should receive equal representation but this is further proof that it's not an israel hamas war that's that's one thing another thing that is in hamas's charter is that they want a state within 67 borders so actually hamas despite popular belief does not want a state from the river to the sea they want a state that 
and the occupation, the internationally recognized occupation. This is uh, this is in in its in its charter. Now, whether I have disagreements with Hamas, whether what I think, whether I am like secular, I don't believe in like political Islam or blah blah blah. I think all of these things um, are irrelevant. I'm report. I'm report. I'm answering just solely based on the question of what is their charter. Another thing is the the use of human shields. Um, you must understand that the Gaza Strip is the second most densely populated place on Earth. And the idea that Hamas uses human shields has been debunked over and over and over again. Um, but I want to—I just want to engage this critically a little bit. Let's say that they do. Let's say that there's a Hamas member here on stage um, who's, you know, encircled by seventy thousand children, and to get to them, to get to him, you have to kill those seventy children. This is not the trolley dilemma. This is not hypotheticals. You do not disregard the lives of thousands and thousands of people to get to one so-called terrorist. And the responsibility, even if terrorists hid behind civilians, the responsibility of killing civilians always falls on those doing the act of killing civilians, plain and simple. The fact that this is even debatable is astonishing to me. Again, regardless of what anyone thinks of Hamas, Regardless, if we want, if you want to wipe them off the face of the earth, the idea that you can legitimize the bombing of a hospital because seemingly there's a, a Hamas tunnel underneath it, and you can legitimize killing babies in their incub incubators, is absolutely horrific and disgusting. I think one thing I would add to that is I think it's important context that people lack, and I encourage people to check out a book called Hamas Contained, A History of Hamas by Tarek Bakoni, is why Hamas was founded in the first place, what the context was of the legitimacy crisis that the secular nationalists of Fatah and the Palestinian Liberation Organization were entering into at the time as they were forced to, as a condition of entering negotiations with Israel and the United States, to renounce the armed struggle and a priori concede 78% of historic Palestine by so quote unquote recognizing Israel's right to exist. This is not in my pile of questions here, but if you could maybe talk about a little bit about the context in the Palestinian national struggle that led to, to Hamas coming about in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think like the secular movement has had its um, own failures throughout the years and also like Hamas has been, like Hamas again, in the Western imagination, is a non-starter. So uplifting it and supporting it financially and giving it more and more room to exist and grow has always been in the best interests of the Israelis. And I don't think the Israelis recognized that there might come a day um, where Hamas can achieve the military capabilities that it, it, it has today. What's like what, what Hamas is facing today, this kind of depoliticization attempt, is what the PLO faced back in the day. There's lots of corruption. There was, there was, and there continues to be lots of corruption in the PLO and what now is the Palestinian Authority. And Hamas emerged as an answer, to, as an answer to this during the first Intifada, if I'm not mistaken. People were uh, profoundly frustrated with the with the large compromises that gave away swaths of their lands to an Israeli power that still did not war warrant them any right or any access to their resources. And Hamas emerged as an answer to this. But if, I, if, if I'm allowed to be a little bit more anecdotal, 
and just engage some some of you in in in, in a hypothetical situation. Jerry talked about the uncle who pulled out his niece from the rubble and said, you are beautiful like the moon. Yesterday I talked to my friend about their cousin um, who was killed under the rubble. I told you about the, about the man, um, about the man uh, who carried his son in two separate plastic bags. I watched a video of a Palestinian photojournalist named Ali Jadallah who was talking to us, his viewers, and then he pans his camera to the back seat where his lifeless father lied in the back seat and wrapped in white cloth. And he says, there are no ambulances. There is no one to help me bury him. I'm going to go bury him by myself. And he gave us this kind of impromptu eulogy. And he said, please pray for my father. And then two hours later, he was on television talking to a reporter about what happened to his family and about the fact that his sister is still under the rubble and that they are still looking for it. But because there's not um, enough foreign correspondence, he is having to do this labor to pause this grief, to do this labor. Think about all of those people. Think about all of those conditions and then think in contrast about all of those who are writing their articles across the political spectrum. All of those who are writing their articles about Hamas, about Gaza, about the Palestinians. Think about the expensive couches they're sitting on and think about the view outside of their window where there is no white phosphorus. And think about the fact that they've never had to write an obituary that contains the names of 35 members of their family. And think about the fact that they've never had to go on television screen to debate their humanity right after their entire family was bombed. These things are not minor details. This is not just context that is marginal. It is, again, the very reason why people rebel, why people resist, why people engage um, in these acts that we might think are uh, completely inexp inexplicable, but I think it's I think it's inexplicable to be a nurse at a hospital and have your shift interrupted by your husband's body on a stretcher. That's inexplicable. That's unjustifiable. I think it's unjustifiable to be a, a, a Palestinian ch child with no surviving members of your family. But we are told time and time again that our lives are worth less than the lives of our oppressor. And only when they die will the newsrooms start reporting on it. What can American Jews do to help efforts for Palestinian liberation? And I'll, I'll add to this question that I think one of the most notable parts of this explosive, explosive unprecedented Palestinian solidarity movement in the U.S. is that a very lead role has been taken by anti-Zionist Jews, specifically Jewish Voice for Peace, and if not now, and as um, someone whose wife is Jewish and is in a social and political left-wing universe that is substantially Jewish, it has been incredibly, one of the most surreal parts of this moment has been not only the demonization of Palestine solidarity movements as anti-Semitic, but the attempt that necessarily follows from that to almost like disavow and excommunicate a entire generation of left-wing Jews who um, are saying not in our name. Yeah, I want to. I want to also just just make sure I emphasize that what you're saying is not hyperbole. The Jerusalem Post which hilariously was once called the Palestine Post. Anyway, <laughs> the Jerusalem Post released an editorial 
saying no longer one of us in reference to anti-Zionist Jews, saying that they can no longer consider anti-Zionist Jews or Jews who are in opposition to the state of Israel to be Jewish. It is some of the most absurd and bizarre things to be seeing Columbia University, a once-hailed beacon of free speech, uh, suspend not only students for justice in Palestine, but the Jewish uh, students on campus, the Jewish Voice for Peace chapter on campus that is seeking to speak out against occupation, to speak out against the unfolding genocide in the Gaza Strip. But this should teach us something. This very absurdity is not a bug, but a feature in the system. It tells us that not only is opposition, is opposition to violence and opposition to violations of human rights and international law apply to non-Israelis, but also the accusation of anti-Semitism will always only apply to non-Israelis and those not allied by Israelis. And I know, again, this might sound like an, like, a, like an exaggeration. Is anyone in this room familiar with Pastor John Hagee? So Pastor John Hagee is a televangelist. He's one of the most prominent televangelists in, in America. He's a creator of an organization called Christians United for Israel. Right. This is one of Benjamin Netanyahu's best buddies. Um, but Netanyahu could could walk across the stage and shake his hand firmly. He could do Zoom webinars with him. John Hagee has said on multiple occasion has sang on multiple occasions the praises of Hitler. He has said, "quote And you can look it up that Hitler was a hunter sent from God to help the Jews. You can look it up." Theodore Herzl, one of the pioneers of the Zionist, of Zion, of the Zionist movement, said in his book, Der Jutenstand, the, the Jewish state, he says that the anti-Semitic allies, uh, sorry, the anti-Semitic nations of the world will be our most effective allies. So we understand that the charge of anti-Semitism has been politicized and used as a muzzle to stifle anti-Palestinian advocacy. And this is something that we must be aware of, um, because not only does this come at the expense of Palestinians, and I think it's most importantly, it most importantly comes at the expense of the Palestinians who, you know, whose homes uh, are under constant bombardment, but it comes at the expense of uh, the Jewish community globally. What does it say when you reduce the crime of anti-Semitism to opposition and criticism of Israel. What does that make of that charge? Following up on your, your comment about the far-right fundamentalist pastor, we have a number of questions here, one of which is what ties do you see between the Israeli state and USA fundamentalist Christianity? And then there's a note on the back. I see how much heartfelt effort goes into even speaking on Palestine. Thank you for your openness, for your courage doubly as someone whose homeland is actively colonized as well. To not only want, but demand better for ourselves takes us closer to the better we dream of. And it's signed with a uh, uh, watermelon slice. Thank you. I want to begin the answer by saying that I'm not an expert on the matter. Um, so take it with a grain of salt. Everything else I am an expert on and was 100% correct. It's it's like a it's a it's quite a bizarre alliance the the alliance that exists between the the Christian Zionists and the Israeli Zionists because the Israeli Zionists their goal um, from this is to uh, extract as much money from the Christian Zionist communities as possible and to also encourage as much American Jews to make 
to immigrate and settle in, in Palestine, which, you know, some of you could say that's like a political thing, but what's uh, the crazy, the very crazy aspiration is the aspiration of the Christian Zionists who believe, and I, I even, I feel embarrassed to say this out loud because it's so ridiculous, but they believe that if they could get all of, quote-unquote, the Jews into Israel, then Armageddon would come. Not joking, and if you don't believe the testimony of a Palestinian because of your own racial bias, you can look up an Israeli film about this uh, called Till Kingdom Come that talks about this. But So it's like a deeply and profoundly anti-Semitic aspiration to like depopulate all of the Jewish people from the, from the world and have them immigrate so that you could have the end of times happen and blah, blah, blah. But to the Israeli government, to the Zionist government, this is just a gullible... You know, this is just a gullible, you know, this is just a coalition of idiots who are willing to give us money and who are willing to exacerbate our um, our enterprise, our settler colonial enterprise in Palestine. And they are correct. There are more Christian Zionists in the United States than there are Israeli Zionists. Uh, sorry, Jewish Zionists. By far. By far, by, by millions and millions and, mil- and millions. And you, you, you read their testimonies and they really believe in those things so much so that they take food and money out of their own pockets to give to the zionist state and obviously this is kind of a feature of all of evan evangelicalism or whatever the word is um to, that exploits the poor but it's very starkly uh, evident uh, in here so it's kind of it's not i don't know if it's mutual interest but it's a very bizarre alliance of interests I'm told we have a hard stop almost right now, but I'm going to close with one final question, which is what can non-Palestinians do to support Palestinian freedom in this current moment? And can you talk about how student movements can concretely impact situations on the ground in Palestine? What actions are most helpful, impactful? Well, first of all, we must we must recognize that there is so much fear, and this fear is not born out of the blue. There is so much hostility against Palestinians and against any pro-Palestinian sentiment, and this hostility is being transformed into legislation, into FBI investigations, into the ADL whispering in the in the ear of Joe Biden and Joe Biden and the Senate trying to criminalize Palestinian advocacy. It 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 translates into spineless university leaders who go after and target students and their freedom of speech. And and it goes after uh, uh, horrific, uh, disgusting law firms who come together to say that if if you're pro-Palestinian, we are not going to ha- to hire you. Um, so there is there is legitimate fear over people's academic prospects as well as career prospects. But I want to remind all of us in this room that these fears and these circ- and these consequences will never compare to the consequences of living under occupation, being socially ostracized, or losing your job is never going to compare to. Losing Losing your home or losing your entire family, the fear of of uh, uh, suspension is never going to compare to the to the moments you live uh, the moments you live before you die under rubble. So I want to encourage everybody to be brave, and I want to remind everyone of the absolute importance of taking a public stance, denouncing apartheid, denouncing genocide, denouncing Zionism, denouncing the siege on Gaza, denouncing the occupation. It is of utmost crucial importance. This rabid repression, totalitarian response to Palestinian advocacy is scary, but it's also revealing that they are proportionately responding to the way that the tide is shifting. 
And we are, when they come for us, we do not shrink. We do not give them an inch. We become brave and we become courageous. And we don't think of ourselves as casualties. We don't think of the prices we pay as personal, individualistic prices. But we remember that we are in, we are members of a collective movement and that struggles necessitate sacrifice. That is the most important thing. So absolutely, it's important for you to, to continue to acquire political education and to have difficult conversations around the, dinner, around the dinner table. It's important to put things into perspective. And it's important to remember that the news cycle, the news cycle should not be what calls us to protest in the street or what calls us to send statements or what calls us to push for our institutions to adopt BDS. It should be us. We should not be rea reacting. And the status quo, the only status quo we should accept, we should be all calling for a ceasefire, absolutely. But the only status quo that we should accept is a status quo of freedom and dignity for all. Well, Mohammed Al-Kurd, thank you very, very much. And thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight. Mohammed Al-Kurd is a poet, writer, journalist, and organizer from Jerusalem in occupied Palestine. He's best known for his role as a co-founder of the Save Sheikh Jarrah movement and currently serves as Palestine correspondent for The Nation. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the profound hypocrisy and inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization lies unveiled before our eyes, turning from its home, where it assumes respectable forms, to the colonies, where it goes naked. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives and newsletters at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or another such app, also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling your friends to listen to the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly or annual contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Thank you.